week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Teenage Symphonies to God by Velvet Crush. You got the hooks, you got the awesome melodies and the harmonies. This was a grower for me. They write songs that they sound vaguely familiar. I just imagined that these guys had you know, a huge vinyl record collection. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay, I hear you're under mm-hmm. the weather. I am. A little bit. It's been going around. The uh, the ever-changing weather in central Ohio does not do um, one favors when it comes to... You know what? I think it was uh, sitting outside... On a Saturday at that football game. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it, it will be <clears> a couple <throat> weeks now, but Jason and I, along with fellow uh, um, Stafford Five member or former member and uh, one-time contributor for the Failure and Big Wreck podcast, Keith Jenkins, and his uh, wife, Wendy, we drove up to Bowling Green, Ohio, our alma mater, to take in a football game that was, for three and a half quarters, pretty boring. And caused us to leave. And then all of a sudden, with uh, 11 minutes to go, it became a back-and-forth shootout after we had left for dinner. And it was just cold enough to make me sick. So I woke up Sunday morning starting to feel all scratchy and congested, and two days later, I'm sick. Just out of curiosity, who was it that suggested you take your coat in, but you wouldn't carry your coat? That's right. I did I was too hot. I wouldn't even needed it until the very end. And the third quarter was really cold, mm-hmm. but the first two were actually warm because the sun was on us. Yeah, once look, the guys don't down. carry coats. I, I I do not agree with you. Guys either wear coats or they leave them where they are. They don't carry them. They don't sit on. They don't wrap them around their waist. They don't sit on them. That's what girls do. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but I have to disagree with you. Or men. Have you never seen a man in a suit carrying an overcoat over his arm? We. We make a decision and follow through with it, or we are tough and put up with the elements. Okay. We don't waffle around, carry coats. That's uh, um, very manly of you. I, however, am perfectly fine because I chose to wear my coat. So let that be a lesson to you. I hope you're enjoying a um, a hot toddy to cool your throat down. (laughs) So let's get to tonight's record. We are reviewing the uh, 1994 album Teenage Symphonies to God by Velvet Crush. Now, before I put this on the schedule, Jay, had you ever heard Velvet Crush? No, I, well, I, <laughs> that's a tough, uh, no, I, didn't, I don't think so, but uh, it did sound familiar, but the band name did not sound familiar, and... Uh, I'm not 100% sure that I heard the songs, but there's a couple on here that sort of, uh, that did sound somewhat familiar. Well, there's probably a reason for that, and we'll get into it. But I was also completely unfamiliar with Velvet Crush, which is the reason why I picked them. This is one of those bands where I was like, I've always heard that name, but I just don't know what they sound like or, or where they're coming from, you know, sonically. So it would be good to put them on the schedule and check them out. So... How about we jump into the history of the band here? History of the band. Velvet Crush formed in 1989 in 
Jay, you want to you want to take a shot at what city and state mm. Velvet Crush are from? I'm going to tell you, mm -hmm. we haven't reviewed a band from this state. Mm. I'm going to take a wild, wild guess here. Okay. St. Louis, Missouri. Wrong. Rhode Island. Oh, I should have known. They sound way smarter than, than St. Louis. So, Velvet Crush is primarily made up of Paul Chastain and Rick Menk, who were in multiple bands in the 1980s. Uh, Chastain was a solo artist and uh, also a member of the bands The Stupid Cupids. Rick Menk was a member of The Reverbs and The Paint Set. Um, in 1987, they started the band Choo Choo Train, which released two singles and an EP. They also recorded on Sarah Records as The Springfields and for Bus Stop Records as Bag of Shells. So these guys were pretty busy. You're going to say Bag of Shells. Why would you always just... Wow. Bag of Shells. Okay. Yes. Okay. So in 89, they form Velvet Crush with Jeffrey Bochart of Honey Bunch. They released three singles on Bus Stop, and then they record a cover of Teenage Fan Club's Everything Flows, and that got them signed to the Creation Records label in the UK, which issued their debut record in the presence of greatness in 1991. In 1994, they released the album we're reviewing, Teenage Symphonies to God, and that was released in the US on Sony Epic. The title for the album, Teenage Symphonies to God, is a reference to a comment that Brian Wilson made about what the sound of the album Smile was going to sound like. So you can kind of get an idea from there where they're coming from somewhat musically. Um, after the release of Teenage Symphonies to God, the group spent a couple years backing up Stephen Duffy on the road and in the studio for two albums. They returned as a regular band in 1998 with the album Heavy Changes on the Action Music label. Then a follow-up in 1999, Free Expression. At this point, the band was back down to a duo of just Chastain and Menk, and they released Soft Sounds in 2002 and Stereo Blues in 2004. They've also spent time and this is another indication of the sound of this band, as the road or touring band of Matthew Sweet. Uh, off and on in the last decade, they were the touring band uh, for his um, Sunshine Lies album, which came out, I think, in 2008. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of think that besides being a band on their own they're also kind of sought after by various other musicians for their yeah you know musicianship especially you know, sonically with their tie-in to matthew sweet who also has produced some of their records and who contributed a song to this record the uh track something's gotta give is actually an original matthew sweet song so that's velvet crush and their history first Rhode Island band that we are reviewing. They did spend some time in Chicago before that, so if you had said Chicago, I would have given you partial credit. I wouldn't have said that because you said it was a place where we haven't 
uh, review to ban. That's true. Oh, yeah. I would have misled you if I had left out that that caveat. So let's get to this album, Jay. I mentioned Matthew Sweet that they, he was both a uh, supporter and a hirer of this band. We <laughs> put it. I mentioned the Brian Wilson connection. It's pretty. Um, I guess it's pretty obvious that there is a retro or 60s pop element to this band which both sweet and brian wilson contribute to oh did you hear that in listening to it without knowing those two things and um yeah yeah what was your overall impressions yeah i mean it's it's hard to uh i mean i think anybody who's listened to um listen to music in the last 20 years at least you know indie and alternative music would be able to pick up on that right away Uh, you'd be able to hear the matthew sweet and you'd be able to hear the teenage fan club but i mean frankly i think at least half of this album if not a little bit more you know it may be better than those bands Uh, i mean i need to go back and sort of haven't listened to either of those two bands in a while but um i may need to go back and revisit them because you know, this did for me a lot of things right that those bands don't quite do right. Um, particularly the first couple songs. Really, there's only probably three songs on here that I feel like are are a little bit of a filler. One of them is it's funny that you said Matthew Sweet wrote. Um, was it Something's Got to Give? Track eight. Yeah. Because that's one of to me one of the filler songs on here. I mean, it's okay, but it's a good song, it's like, but it's it's long ridiculously long which which reminds me of like when we saw him when i've seen him live like he jams out a lot and sort of his performances completely missed the point of the whole the genre that he's Mm -hmm. i guess in and the point of the music that he's making whereas i think for the most part this band stays um right in the sweet spot of of doing this music right so um you got the hooks you got the awesome melodies and the harmonies but you've also got this kind of just the right amount of looseness and rawness to it, so it doesn't get too artificial sounding or too sugary, um, which I love. Uh, uh, you know, the guitar playing on this is really good. Um, there's some really cool, like, uh, creative leads and creative solos on here. Well, just to interject for a sec, didn't it, it mm-hmm. remind you a lot of the guitar playing on Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend and Altered Beast and... The albums that feature Robert Quinn and Richard Lloyd, where there's just like this blazing soloing going on over parts of songs, and you know, especially you hear it on Girlfriend, that album. Yeah. That's in particular. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's from the same sort of school of uh, the same idea. Um, I don't know. I have to go back and listen to those albums, but to me, these songs seem better to me. They seem. They seem better crafted and um, more consistent. There's some really, really, some really strong stuff on here. I mean, it starts off the first two tracks are just killer, mm-hmm. and then it kind of get into a little bit of country th- stuff here and there, which is is fine. Um, it's actually kind of a nice little break. Um, so they go into like kind of a country ballad or mid tempo kind of thing, and then they go to another slow song. But both of them are are really pretty pretty good um track three you know, why not your baby that's a cover that's a cover of a oh is it gene clark is the, the guy they're covering 
So it sounds a lot like, uh, you know, when you mix the harmonies in with the country vibe, it, it to me it reminds me a lot of the Jayhawks, uh, particularly that song, and even some of the other harmonies they do in the songs that aren't necessarily country. Uh, reminds me of the harmonies that uh, the Jayhawks do. You know, even like track ten, which is kind of an acoustic, quiet acoustic song that would normally be, it's kind of like an interlude. It would normally be a lot of their albums. Have, we've reviewed what bands have tried to do that's it's they don't come off very well um they sort of seem like filler but to me in accounts in the in the context of this album um it actually works really well it's a, you know trying to tra- it's at track six kind of right in the middle um it's a nice little break and then they kind of go back into um some you know more of the you know open open strumming big guitar stuff and um you know kind of back into what they do well but you know, there's only really, I think towards the end of the album, Weird Summer is a song that's kind of, it's not its not bad, it's a little bit of a filler, it kind of reminds me of uh, that, and I think the song after it, yeah, that one and the one, there's another song right around it where they almost sound like songs from, uh, if anybody out there has kids and they watch Yo Gabba Gabba, <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's like the songs that on Yo Gabba Gabba that they would have like a cartoon montage, um, they have these bizarre cartoon montages of like cartoon characters like you know running through the woods or whatever and playing and it'll always be over some like super sugary you know fun either slow or mid-tempo pop song like that rock pop song so that, that song totally remind me of that but yeah i i think uh you know production wise <clears throat> i think it it sounds pretty good there's not there's not a whole whole lot of uh, kick drum on this which is unfortunate it could really use maybe a remastering just bring up some of the, the low end um it's also at times difficult to hear the bass yeah um, but, but overall i mean the guitar tones are great um, there's a couple songs on here where you know i sort of noted that you know how good the guitar sounded and, uh, the harmonies are are excellent uh, in the in the vocal again going back to my original point about why I like this is that <clears throat> they got just enough rasp in the in the vocal, um, you know, to kind of just give it some character. So again, it doesn't get too too sugary, too um, too perfect. It's got some character to it, which is which is cool. So I, I I liked it a lot. I was really surprised that I hadn't heard of the band. Yeah, and I, I this was a grower for me. The first time I listened to it, I kind of wasn't in love i really liked the first two two tracks like you said but i sort of like started zoning out halfway through the record and then as i listened to it more and, I, and actually it helped to turn up the volume because it really started picking yeah. out the guitar playing it really by by just today i was like i really like almost almost every song on this record um yep. you know it starts out with those two great rockers the first 
one kind of reminds me of like the raspberries in the net mm-hmm. 70s power pop sense and then you have the second track my blank pages which is obviously a kind of a a takeoff on the birds and dylan my back pages can you pull it out of me can you help me find the light all i think all i say never close enough all i know all i do doesn't mean that much rock song and then they do a nice job of like cooling it down got cover the gene clark cover and then the melody on track four time wraps around you Mm -hmm. this great like it's a melody and then a counter melody repeated you know repeated and then building throughout the chorus Mm -hmm. like the motions you make Kind of reminds me of some of the early Jayhawk stuff, but even more melodic because, yep. you know, Gary Loris and, and um, Mark Olson both have that kind of rasp to their voice that um, these guys have, and it's nice to hear. You know, Matthew Sweet's vocals are often so perfect. Yeah, it's nice to hear a little bit of, you know, raggedness. It's yep. the power pop because. So much of power pop is about perfection, and you can hear it like, you know, in in a lot of the bands that get referenced with this band. But there's like a, there's a definite. I think it comes from that country tinge that they have, and they're not afraid to let the the vocal, you know, have a little bit of a not a whine, but just a like a longing in it that makes it really sincere sounding. Um, didn't didn't hold me up to track one. I mean, didn't that sound super familiar to you? It did, and I couldn't place it. Like I couldn't think of like where I would have ever heard it because I don't even remember these guys being like on college radio. Right.
they kind of uh, have one of those sounds, or they write songs that they sound vaguely familiar, but <laughs> but, but in a really good way. I don't know. It's 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 odd. Like Trek Seven has this this really strong nostalgic feel to it. I don't know why, but it's just one of those songs where you hear it and you just start, your mind starts wandering into like, you know, past memories and it just conjures like this nostalgic kind of vibe in you and this very sentimental kind of vibe in you with the uh, pedal steel. Um, it's kind of mid-tempo. It has a little bit of a country kind of vi to, uh, vibe to it, but um, it also reminds me a little bit of um, Super Drag when they get quiet. Mm. But they're able to like... I don't know, just putting these little things that seem so familiar yet you can't really place where you heard it. That's why I was I was curious to hear on the history if that song was maybe covered by somebody or written by Matthew Sweet or some other tie on track one pulled me up because it just sounded so damn familiar. Speaking of pedal steel, the pedal steel solo at the end of Why Not Your Baby, track three, it's just, you know, I'm not a pedal steel aficionado, but yeah. it's just, it's awesome. I mean... Yeah, it's very killer. Yeah, I've heard a lot of bands that are alt-country throw in, like, a pedal steel or lap steel or something something along those lines. And they kind of do it in a, in a rather um, secondary way. But yeah. they... I mean, who's ever playing that? I don't know if it's one of the guys in the band or if they had a, a session guy come in and play that, but it's impressive. I mean... And again, I'm, I don't. I haven't listened to the best pedal steel players in the world, so I don't know. But for for somebody who's listening to primarily rock music, and to hear that, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is really good." Yeah, uh, there's a lot of extra instrumentation on this. It's really well done. Um, so there's pedal steel mixed um, sprinkled throughout the album. Um, there's a, some nice piano parts. Uh, track eight actually has a nice kind of honky tonk piano kind of. Just sitting in the mix it's not you know in your face it's not doing anything you know to, to really detract from the song it just sits in there nice um there's also just some some layering stuff going on that it, it might be the magic of just a good sounding band like when all the pieces come together you kind of start hearing things that aren't there um because it just it fills out the whole sound and it almost sounds like you know you're imagining instruments that when you really listen close aren't really there it's right. kind of the, you know when you're listening to something good when that starts to happen so there's moments of the of the album where that starts to happen for me and I can't quite figure out if they're actually like maybe keyboards underneath or extra vocal harmonies underneath some of the parts where that happens um, but there's just a lot of really good um, just interesting layers that uh, you can kind of pull back as I think when you first listen to the album, you'll sort of be um, drawn in by the by the harmonies, the melodies, the main vocal, which is pretty you know up front, and the guitar playing. But then as you dig in a little bit deeper, you'll start to realize that there's a lot of other layers there of other instruments. Um, and the bass player and the drummer are actually really good. It's just you know on this when this was recording, you know for whatever reason the the bass, uh, the low end, is not fantastic on this album. But like you said, if you listen to it loud, it really helps quite a bit. It's actually pretty much okay. Yeah. But uh, if you listen to it, you know, sort of medium or low volume, it, it, you lose out on some of that stuff that's going on. 
one of the songs I highlighted is actually one of the simplest instrumentation-wise songs on the album, and that's track six, which is number ten. It's confusing, but yeah. yeah. Um, it reminded me a lot because there's two acoustic guitars picking and playing off of each other. It reminded me a lot of Big Star's song Thirteen, which has been covered to death by like everybody from Wilco to Garbage have covered Big Star's Thirteen. I, I really liked hearing because it was actually interesting the way they even produced it. The one guitar was panned hard left, and then the other guitar was actually panned in the middle with the vocal, which is kind of unusual. You would expect the guitars to be panned left and right. Yeah. But then they had like I think it was like a little bit of like a droning keyboard or something going on in that. It wasn't mm-hmm. really a, a you know a defined loud part, um, but it's just a nice break in the middle of the album it to- it brings it all down it's real short you just get this acoustic guitar number for and then it you know atmosphere is is kind of a almost like take on like a teenage fan club song and then you get back like you said with faster days so there's really nothing there's there's stuff that's mid-tempo to slow but there's nothing as really as simple as that track six which is uh like I said, a nice break. Yeah, and I, I called that out earlier in that, um, you know, we've listened to a lot of albums here that try to to, to try to produce that moment um, of, of having an interlude, having um, sort of a, a little bit of a break in the album, um, and it doesn't work sometimes, you know, all the time. Right. Um, in a lot of cases, I think we've both said, like, just toss that out. Like, it's just, an, <laughs> it's just taking up, it's just filler, it's just taking up space. Uh, but in this case, it it actually works really well. Um, I'm glad they did it. So, but it's sounding to me like you're hearing and, and you're knowing of a lot of direct references they're making here, either lyrically or song title or um, even musically, um, which kind of plays into, I think, for both of us, the the familiarity that we're hearing. Yeah. You know, maybe. <laughs> Well, obviously that's that's probably not an accident. So, which is fine. I mean, that's you know, these guys seem really well versed in '60s and '70s music. You know, they're yeah. they're referencing the Birds and Dylan with my blank pages. There's all sorts of like big star influence and '70s power pop. But then they're also paying homage to, you know, they covered Teenage Fan Club on a, on a single that got them signed. They're obviously paying attention to the, the 90s power pop, not just, you know, American and British, uh, with Matthew Sweet, Teenage Fan Club. Um, and then they're covering guys like Gene Clark, who are, you know, very traditional you know, country stars. Um, mm-hmm. And you hear that on not just the cover, but also on track 12 keep on lingering um and there's touches of it throughout the whole album um i just imagine that these guys had you know a huge vinyl record collection and they were probably going through and like you know picking parts out of their favorite beach boy songs and and taking influences from that and combining listening to the birds and and um buffalo springfield and, and other bands from the late 60s and Obviously, the British stuff, Kinks and, and stuff like that, and it's just like it's so rich in like 
a variety of different eras and sounds and they yeah. they're able to like combine that into it's not necessarily of the 90s but when you put it up against matthew sweets and even like that red cross album which is a lot heavier but definitely yeah. in in that vein um it fits in pretty well with those well there was a whole i guess genre or subgenre of bands uh you know doing the uh, pop power pop revival with a you know sort of a an alternative aesthetic to it you know with the sort of a, a rawness and a looseness um so there was definitely a genre for this band to exist in um, and from you know we're familiar with some of the some if not most of those bands and, and to me uh, this just stands stands right up there with the best of them if not you know the best of a lot of those albums I, I need to go back and listen to the first teenage fan club and i need to listen to um matthew speed girlfriend again and some of those albums it's been years since i've heard them but um i think this is a really good representation of that uh movement in the 90s which was pretty was pretty interesting and pretty i think important yeah absolutely i'd like to go back and listen to i'm partial to um, his uh, Matthew Sweet's album Altered Beast uh, he mm-hmm. kind of lets the darkness in a little bit on that record yeah. which I like <laughs> with songs like Dinosaur Act and um, you know someone to pull the trigger and stuff like that so um, this does make me want to revisit his earlier <laughs> stuff I still have and he's got a new album out um, this fall which I need to check out and the Posies were another band that was sort of part of that yes. that sound that um you know, there's there's moments on here that that uh, Velvet Crush are, are reminiscent of them as well. So, which makes sense because think, they ended up being the backing band on Big Star when they got back together. <clears throat> so, uh, so let's get into. And we're talking about bands of that era that were more successful. Yeah. Why do you think this was not more successful? Because, like, we've both said we never heard this band. We were, you know. We were listening to Matthew Sweet. We were listening to the Posies. We were listening to, you were listening to Red Cross. Uh, <laughs> was listening to the Jayhawks. I w- I w- yeah, I was listening to Teenage Fan Club. I had the first album. I, I liked that a lot. And I, I was very much into this um, this type of thing at, at the time it came out. That's why I'm shocked that I never heard of it. What label was this on? Uh, like I said, this was released on uh, Epic, Sony in the United States, and Creation in the UK so they were on a major label I don't know it's so weird like like the album cover doesn't even look familiar to me the name of the band doesn't sound familiar to me um you know it could have been a case of I I know the labels were putting out tons of records at that time um just you know throwing everything against the wall to see what would stick you know it could have been a case of just something went wrong in their um their record deal either timing or you know weird stuff happens with yeah you know the AR guy you signed with leaves before the album comes out and then you know the label doesn't want to support it because there's nobody there pushing for it and they basically just release it and don't put any money behind it and nobody ever hears about it um you know we don't know if that happened for sure but you know that happened to a lot of bands so i'd be interested um, to read some reviews from the from the era you know i Every once in a while, I'll catch like a CMJ from that era, and I'll get to go back and read reviews. I'm in, I'm just interested to see 
if what they were picking up on in terms of you know where the band was coming from and and oftentimes you can get sort of an insight into you know bands that didn't make it there'll, there'll be some sort of indicator you know sure. they weren't touring so they weren't supporting the record or you know like i said this band actually after this record they became the backing band for um a solo artist so mm-hmm. maybe they weren't really all that interested in supporting the record maybe they were gonna you know if they were gonna make more money as a backing band or a you know somebody else maybe that's why this album at least for us kind of flew under the radar now i know that there are people who are absolutely you know dedicated and love this band and specifically this record this has a on all music this is like one of the highest rated albums um in the 90s uh, it's no kidding <laughs> yeah it's been it's uh if you go to the amazon page for yeah. this it's got four and a half out of five stars and every review is a glowing this is one of the best albums of the 90s this is an album that you need to hear this is an album that's criminally underlooked you know there are people who are absolutely uh, enthralled with this record and it's easy to see why absolutely i mean uh another band that comes to mind when i listen to it as we talk here is urge overkill so we reviewed um what their first album or one of their first albums and they're trying to play in the same area but they can't quite they either won't go there completely and commit or they can't go there completely and commit um i think this band has that sort of raw sort of energy to them that urge overkill has but you know they've also got a shitload of talent ability and they've done all their homework and they know how to you know craft these songs and do it so um you know it i think it's probably just a case of uh somebody dropped the ball either the band did or the label did and, you know you really only get a little window it's very rare that you know any band um if you don't do it everything right when you first release the album it's very rare that you get any opportunity after that you know sort of you lose your you lose your shot and you know the business moves on there's always new people putting music out and yeah there's very little you know interest there's very little motivation or opportunity to go back and you know dig up a cd that came out four months ago that that you know wasn't promoted and wasn't brought to your attention it's just not going to happen so it's, it's very easy to just get buried buried and lost yeah i remember those days sitting in the uh, basement at west hall with uh, thou- literally thousands of CDs stacked along the walls, you know, and I would say 90% of them got one listen and then put down. Yeah. You know, uh, most of those never saw the inside of the actual studio because you just got every week you would get a box from each label of 40 or 50 new albums. Because they were just throwing stuff out there every week, trying to see what was going to hit, trying to see. They had already signed, you know, X number of bands, and they were going to throw albums out at the college radio stations. All of their, not just the big labels, but then all of their imprints that they had, that were, you know, Sony had like 550 Music, and um, they all had their Cargos and Headhunters and all those subsidiary labels and you know, whatnot. So. There was- there was a tremendous amount of rock music released between probably 
you know, 92 and 95, 96. Oh, yeah. I don't know the numbers, but I have the sense of it may have been a record time in terms of the amount of bands that were signed and albums that were put out in the, um, the rock or alternative rock genre. It was... Uh, it was literally let's let's grab as much as we can, throw it at the wall, and see what sticks. And you know, for whatever reason, this this band didn't stick right away. And if you don't stick right away, they move on to something else. So yeah, people tend to think that that only happened in like Seattle, in after you know Nirvana broke, and then in Chicago because there's a lot of bands out of Chicago, and maybe Boston, but that happened all over the country. I mean, this band was yeah. from Rhode Island, and they got signed to Sony. You don't hear a lot about bands from Rhode Island. <laughs> I would be I would be hard pressed to name another band from Rhode Island. But you know another thing I'll, I'll point out that probably did not help them. I'm not going to say that it was the reason, but I'm sure it didn't help them a lot. Was um, the album cover is not great, and um, mostly because I know they're trying to go for this kind of nostalgic looking. You know, kind of throwback to um, a vinyl, kind of a, a early '60s, late '50s kind of vinyl record. Right. But it almost looks like a compilation or something. You know what I mean? There's a lot of type on the record, and mm. just the artwork doesn't quite look. It doesn't look like a band to me. That kind of threw me when you, when I started reviewing the CD and I was looking at it. It was like, is this a compilation or something? I don't know. There's something about this that doesn't look like a, a you know a proper album cover. Or it looks like um, it'd be a, for a kid's album. Yeah, it just doesn't quite look right. And, I mean, again, when you're, like you said, you got thousands of CDs that you got to listen to. And basically, you know, anything you can do to, to, to stand out from the crowd is going to help. And anything you do to detract yourself is going to hurt. So, yeah, it, it certainly did not help. This album cover certainly did not help them. I, I mean... It's a it's a nice idea with the drawing and stuff, and there's probably a better way they could have executed it. But um, the, the way it ended up coming out, I, I think it's more distracting and sort of confusing than than helpful in terms of saying what the music's about. And they're definitely going for like a kitschy, like you said, '60s look on the out because it says stereo across the top, and then there's a little yeah. note that says contemporary pop music, and it's got the uh, the barcode number and and they're they're hearkening back to those 1960s singles and albums that came out very like early rolling stones look to it in terms of some of the the um like what's the type in, in yellow there's like velvet crush teenage symphonies the god and then there's type in yellow that says it says the guy's names in the band it says rick Mank, paul chastain and and uh the other guy chart i mean with all that type on there doesn't that like if you glanced at it wouldn't you say like oh this is probably like a compilation of power pop or something well it might confuse you because you might think are these guys writing symphonies it looks like a a movie soundtrack almost yeah that's a good yeah it it could be mistaken for a movie soundtrack it's a over crush starring claire danes and (laughs) and hawk all right well i think we have covered quite a bit of Velvet Crush and I think we have both discovered a, uh, a hidden gem. Luckily we've got more opportunities to uh, to check out this band since they put out like five albums in the 90s. They had like back-to-backs in 98, 99 
then there was an earlier album before this so in the future wow, really? I, I don't see okay. I, I've done some searching and I haven't come across any of the other albums yeah they uh, they've got check my notes here 91 we've got in the presence of greatness they do not have um, what you would understated album titles Got <laughs> in the presence of greatness is their first one and then teenage symphonies to God is the is second album and then you've got 98 is heavy changes and 99 is free expression so we've got three other albums now the later ones came out on small record on small labels they may be harder to find. Yeah, because this one's on Spotify. and Yeah. Uh, you said it's on Amazon. I haven't seen it. That's the Amazon. only Sony album. Uh, oh. Creation put out the first one, but the, uh, in the United States, they're on a small label called Ringer's Lactate, which Whoa. is the first time I've ever said that label. <laughs> you say Ringer's Lactate? Yes. Oh, and then in the, disgusting. Yeah. In uh, 98... Heavy Changes came out on Action Music. Free Expression in 99 came out on Bobsled. And then the, the two albums in the aughts, uh, Soft Sounds, came out on Action Music. And then Stereo Blues must have been self-released around a really small label. Just not even listed. So, and then they have actually a... Comp- they have compilation albums and live albums and singles and whatnot. DPs and There's quite a bit of uh, Velvet Crush stuff out there. It's just hard to find so. so that's it for Velvet Crush. Two thumbs up. We'll be back next week with a special guest. Yes, that's right. Another special guest. We're going to have a lot of special guests, Jay. When we do our end of the year roundtable show and we invite all of our special guests on for a uh, roundtable discussion of this podcast, we're going to have to have a large roundtable. You're going to need a, a wider uh, broadband. I guess so. You're going to need a bigger pipe. I need Chip. I'm going to need Neil and Keith and our special guest for next week, which will remain a secret for now. So that's um, that's quite a few people. And then you and me. Maybe we should just take the day off and let them do the podcast. See what happens. That sounds good to me. Oh, I need a break. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, I actually thought about maybe we should do two albums per episode. And I was like, that would be a lot of work. I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks again, Jay, for joining me. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.